welcome to another SPAC Insider podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. Small and medium-sized businesses are routinely underbanked, but what is the best way to serve them? They're a class of customers that is difficult to market towards and vet financially, but Plastic believes it has found a way. I'm Nick Layton, and this week my colleague Melina Haddad and I speak with Plastic founder and CEO Elliot Buchanan. Plastic specializes in providing payments and credit card services to SMBs. It signed a $480 million combination agreement with Colonnade Acquisition Corp. 2 in August. Elliot tells us how Plastic managed to dodge the impacts of the pandemic on its customer base and financial services more broadly by keeping a light balance sheet. We also discuss how some of the macro headwinds blowing towards SPACs actually provide a competitive advantage for Plastic's operations. Take a listen. And so, Elliot, you co-founded Plastic about a decade ago. What was the market for B2B payments like back then? And, and how have the needs, particularly for small businesses, changed since? Yeah, I started the company, like you said, 10 years ago. And at that point, I mean, we actually, our, our roots originally were more focused on consumers. Now, consumers often, you know, look and, and feel and smell very similar to sort of the long tail of small business. But the reason that's important is I think a lot of the payments world was still very much not as much focused on B2B. And I think that was for a couple reasons. I think the primary one was there was still quite a bit of runway in terms of market to capture when it comes to consumer payments. So if you rewind the clock 10 years ago, I mean, Square was around, but it had just, you know, rough, just come out and, and, and the squares of the world and, and Stripe, you know, had maybe just come out or maybe didn't exist. And um, there was a lot of market share left for sort of the last mile of consumer payments, you know, small coffee shops where t- typically we, we forget it now, we couldn't use our, we couldn't use credit cards and couldn't make electronic payments. And so I think there was a lot of focus there from Visa and MasterCard as that market started to see more, I'd say, traction over the, the last decade or so, a huge push I think, uh, move towards B2B. We saw it firsthand with respect to our partnerships with, you know, the likes of Visa and Mascar in terms of 10 years ago, they didn't, for example, they didn't have a, as far as I recall, they didn't have a global head of B2B as a title, you know, little little symbols like that. Now there's a whole several thousand person org at, at each of the large networks, just sort of telling in terms of what priorities matter from, you know, from the top down. But so it's been a particularly rocky time in your world through the pandemic, and some of your prominent peers like Cabbage hit some major struggles as we saw, but Plastic continued growing volume, revenue, and gross profit through this period. So what do you think you've gotten right, and what pitfalls do you feel like you avoided? I think what we got right is also where we've been lucky, as I've learned, you know, I mean, you you, you have to work hard to be lucky, um, but um, nonetheless, I, I would attribute it not just to our, our efforts, but somewhat, somewhat sort of the macro secular trends. I mean... You mentioned an example, not that it's the only one, Cabbage, right? Very interesting business, uh, obviously now with American Express, who bought them. But categorically, you could argue we serve similar customers, right? We both serve small, medium businesses who are looking for you know, short-term working capital. And so maybe the category and the value prop we're solving for is similar, but the mechanism, the way we solve for that is very different. And that's important because during downturns, for example, or changes in the economy, whether it's sort of the abrupt change during COVID or, or the more perhaps prolonged, elongated uh, change we're seeing now in the markets, probably well through next year of some kind. If you are actually lending money directly, if you take balance sheet risk and you're lending to SMBs, most lenders during downturns immediately and rightfully tighten their belts and either cut back on on their portfolio lending or the limits or or the new customers or the credit requirements for new customers because uh, they need to they need to set aside financials on their balance sheet for you know losses and provisions like that in plastics case i'd say you know our our founding thesis was always that small businesses already have 
plenty of credit in a format that they already know really well, which is a credit card, right? It's an instrument that's been around five, six decades. People know how to use it. It's not something that's, you know, requires a lot of behavior change, but also it's credit that's already been, you know, approved and underwritten. And so why is that important in terms of, I think, our ability to weather some of these changes in the economy is that credit cards typically are often the last form of credit that gets perhaps tightened during these times of sort of economic uncertainty compared to like, say, spot loans or lines of credit, which are especially now directly tied to the Fed's, Fed funds rate. And so I think that's that's one more sort of mechanical functional reason of, of how we deliver our product. And the other one realistically is um, we we are somewhat a beneficiary of recessionary like trends or even economic uncertainty, pick your, pick your favorite term, because again, the average SMB during these times actually seeks more credit. And often there's less sources of credit like direct loans. And so they need more credit. They have credit cards. So often they come to plastic, perhaps in a heightened manner with greater usage during these times. So we're a little counter cyclical in that sense. Right. And then looking at the landscape now, what can you tell us about your sector in terms of its size and how much of that is up for grabs? Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny because just got back from New York and talking to various folks in the industry of different types. And, you know, there's a lot of, rightfully, there's a lot of, I'd say, uh, maybe pessimism is is too negative, but let's just call it, there's a lot of macro pessim- pessimism with the broader economy. Again, different views on, on on where it goes, but generally some some pessimism there. And yet, almost every conversation I've been having as recently as literally last week with folks that are close to the public markets generally, or or the fintech markets more 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 specifically, there's a lot of optimism still for B two B on fintech, and that's because uh, most of the pessimism lies in the markets where people felt like. Okay, these companies were really fueled by stimulus money, and more importantly, the the consumer spend that has driven the revenues of these companies, some of these companies that are now very down, the consumer spend was really propped up by the government, and that's that obviously, as we all knew, was not sustainable, and here we are. But B2B, as a secular sort of uh, trend, has really strong tailwinds, despite maybe the broader market headwinds, because there's more and more SMBs starting than ever before. There's more entrepreneurs starting than ever before. Those are both positive tailwinds, and, and entrepreneurs and businesses need capital. That has never not been the case hundreds of years ago. Um, maybe the format was different, and it probably will still be the case hundreds of years now, even if the, the, the format evolves. And so we're seeing quite a bit of actually optimism around our focus on, on B2B. Got it. And so why do you think that legacy financial service players have been so slow to get the all-in-one solutions to small and medium-sized businesses up to this point? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think some of them are obviously making greater strides than others. But if you if you think about le- legacy institutions and where the revenue comes from, especially the larger banks and where they're concentrated, it's typically, you know, not universally so, but typically it's in two major sort of products, right? You know, mortgage is, is you know, one of the most profitable products that the large legacy institutions obviously own most of the market on. And then it's commercial, commercial accounts. And so, and often they can be linked. But um, in that sense, a lot of the focus uh, is, is not on SMB because it's actually really economically difficult to properly and scalably acquire and then retain small medium businesses relative to the value they may bring from a revenue perspective. And so for a large bank, often, not always, but often the math isn't there. And so you've seen less of a focus on that compared to other products that are much more profitable. And so in in some sense, you could argue it's actually perhaps a rational decision or a rational, there's a rational reason why the legacy institutions haven't really captured that market. And then the other thing I would say is, a lot of the software, it's a related point, but a lot of the software 
that the legacy institutions have built over many decades is antiquated. Some of them, again, are doing a good job modernizing them, but nonetheless, not tailor-built for the needs of a typical SMB. If you ask a typical small, medium business in America what type of software they want, what tasks they want it to accomplish, how they want it to look and feel, it, it's typically going to be often the opposite of, of the sort of the, the, the types of technologies and user experiences that the banks have historically invested in. And so those are two gaps that make it a long and expensive journey for the legacy institutions to catch up on. And so a lot of them either decide to not make that bet or they choose to partner or they, or they buy or they do build, but they throw a sizable investment at it and even still not sure it always hits the mark. Following off of that, you know, we've already mentioned a few different examples of kind of the different options in terms of, you know, what do you do you want to bring some of this stuff onto your balance sheet or not? Do you want to work with third parties or not? And it looks like Plastic does have some third party backing in, in, in terms of certain functionalities, but just sort of what is your philosophy on that? And, and what are some of the things that you see as being an opportunity to bring completely under the tent that's not yet and, and vice versa? I think one of our, our philosophies probably related to our founding principle that hasn't, or one of our founding principles that hasn't really changed, which is we always said like, let's avoid behavior change where possible, right? With consumer technology, same with small medium business, often the experience can feel say exciting, but nonetheless simple and familiar with low friction, typically easier results in terms of adoption and growth and scale. And for us, that translates to, well, why issue a new loan or a new form of credit if the SMB, if he or she already has an existing form of credit that they understand, they love, they want to use, they're just restricted from using it because most of their vendors won't accept a credit card, which is kind of in a simple in a simple description where we come in or our core product comes in. That's, I think, central to our belief. Now, we have expanded that belief. I think you alluded to it. We do have our own sort of short-term financing product. But even then, one of our philosophies when, when building that, it's pretty recent in the last year or so, was... We don't want to take, we don't want, nor do we need to take balance sheet risk. We don't need to lend the money directly. We don't, we don't want to be the lender. We want to be the technology enabler, right? We, we own the SMB. We understand his or her credit worthiness because of their patterns of usage on plastic or the types of invoices they add or the industry they're in or how many employees they've added to our, our system. And this gives us a really strong indication of data that our partner who's actually providing the loan can use to underwrite. And, and so for us, it's just another product that drives happiness and delight to an SMB and helps them achieve their growth, you know, their growth goals without us breaking at least historically one of our founding principles, which is plenty of existing credit. Um, our model is more payments and the technology provider versus the lender. And that remains true today. Yeah, that's interesting. And also a lot of companies end up looking at SPAC wrap, but also just generally becoming a public company as being uh, an easy enabler for further M&A and things like that. It sounds like you're pretty confident in your ability to build tech pieces that could kind of fit to the different functionalities you want. But I guess, what do you see in terms of that opportunity once you've gotten this deal done of grabbing some pieces from peers and, and tacking uh, some other functions on? Yeah. So I think I'll start with our framework for thinking about partnering, building, acquiring, et cetera. I think the framework is most companies, at least in my experience, are world-class at one or two things. Same as, same as most humans, I, I argue. Uh, I ask this question when I hire people, like, what's, where are you world-class at? And, and if people give an answer that's like, oh, these four or five things, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. It's pretty hard to be world-class at, at not that many things. And so as a company, it's similar in terms of focus. We believe our sort of superpower where, we're, where we are world-class at is in sort of fundamental movement of money, payments, you know, payments infrastructure, right? All the, all the invisible stuff that no one wants to see because actually it's really difficult and complex. And so for anything there, we typically would choose to build because we think we are, if not the best, um, uh, as, good as, as, as good as the best. Um, and so it's faster and to build in-house. 
And then for adjacent add-ons where, you know, we have some smart, some smart people at Plastic and smart engineers and others, and we could probably build, you know, various things like say invoice management or, you know, the short-term financing product like we just alluded to, but are we world-class at that? Do we have a decade of combined, you know, various folks experience and machine learning in terms of our own risk models, et cetera? Do, do we have those same um, sets of expertise for adjacent areas? Absolutely not. And so the faster path is then typically to at least test and learn by way of partnering with someone. And then if it becomes a core need of our SMBs and the, the synergies of the target make sense, and once we have a public market currency, you know, then you could potentially consider an acquisition um, along the, that lens. And then Plastic's revenues are also split between transaction-based fees and reoccurring monthly subscription fees. So how are your strategies for increasing those different? And are you prioritizing one or the other? Really good question. Something we talk about internally a lot, especially right now. The simple sort of approach has been basically the following, which is we believe that, I think you, you heard me mention a few minutes ago that SMB acquisition is notoriously difficult and expensive to get right. Hence why a lot of the legacy institutions, I think, haven't focused on it because um, it doesn't make economic sense. We have been fortunate that our approach of a simple, elegant product where it's a simple value prop to the SMB saying, hey, use your credit card you already have to pay vendors that don't accept it. People understand that it's a really good hook, a good wedge in the door, a, a gateway product, if you will. And the strategy has always really been, that's a really efficient, elegant way to acquire a customer that otherwise is difficult to acquire, that being the small medium business in America. And then, and then you can start to nudge them and push them and upsell them on these additional uh, features that are more recurring or, or SaaS-like in nature, the monthly sort of recurring fees, where we now allow SMBs to upload all their invoices in bulk or, or, or take a photo of an invoice or forward an invoice from their email to a dedicated sort of automated plastic uh, email account that automatically ingests their invoices or connect to any one of their accounting software that they want to connect to, QuickBooks or others such as that. And for those, that's where we will be rolling out sort of the monthly fees. So to transact on Plastic and pay a vendor using your credit card that, that doesn't accept your credit card, you would still pay Plastic a transaction fee. That's our transaction revenue model. That's the bulk of our revenue today. And then a lot of the thesis sort of post back is to rapidly expand our newer sort of state-of-the-art you know, software solutions that we just sort of just sort of rolled out and expand that to the existing customer base. And so that's sort of the one-two punch approach that we've sort of thought about. Got it. And so you briefly spoke about this earlier, but I'm interested to hear more about if plastic has been affected by the macro environment, considering both inflation and rates rising. We have. And for us, I think, thankfully, at least for now, we've been, I think I alluded to the word earlier, more of a beneficiary of these sort of counter-cyclical trends. And um, for us, there's two vectors to unpack. The first would be that, again, in times like we are in now, the need for most SMEs, the need for credit expands, yet the availability of credit contracts. And so basic sort of supply and demand yields that any easy form of credit, kind of like we're facilitating, even though we aren't obviously taking balance sheet risk, becomes in greater demand. And so we've actually therefore seen, especially for our existing customer base, we've seen a lot of them expand their usage in recent, you know, recent quarters. I'd say the other interesting aspect is uh, with interest rates. So why is that relevant to us? Well, all lending products in the United States or most vast majority of lending products in the United States obviously are, are pegged or at least intrinsically linked to the Fed funds rate. 
And so when Fed rate was more or less zero, or you could argue less than that, traditional credit sources like, say, a line of credit, right, which again, mostly would be commercial customers, most small businesses don't have access to that. But lines of credit would be, you know, at, at historic lows of one, two, three percent, whatever it may be. And obviously now they're closer, depends on where you are, but four, five, six, seven percent. And why is this important? Because basically the comparative cost of using any alternative way to, to drive short-term float as a small business, every time the rate goes up from the Fed, it directly becomes more expensive to consider any other option compared to plastic. And so that's perhaps a unique trend in our favor during these times. Right. And you're already present in many international markets, but where do you see demand and opportunity rising the most for plastic moving forward? I mean, as a founder, the emotional answer is there's such a big market globally, right? Because small, it's not like, uh, I mean, SMBs are the lifeblood of America, but they're off there, arguably the lifeblood of the U, of, of, sorry, the global economy as well. And credit is not a unique, uniquely American need. It's a global need. So that means there's obviously a lot of opportunity, but that's the emotional answer as a founder. You want to sort of quickly take over all markets. But the rational answer is our sweet spot of small bean businesses that are 500K to maybe 10 million in revenue. We go outside that, of course, but that's like the sweet spot. Why is that important? There's probably a couple million plus or minus SMBs in that range in the United States. And we have, you know, fractions and fractions of a percent of that today, meaning there's so much runway to focus on the, on the US that we believe it's prudent to sort of for the next several years, just double, triple, quadruple down on the US market for that reason. And again, remain focused. I think, however, where we do see interesting pockets are today, while we serve primarily US customers, those US customers do business overseas. So while plastic itself doesn't have operations, say, in Europe, we do send money overseas, such as to Europe from US customers. And so I think the natural the natural conclusion is, over time, should we ever choose to take a look at another international market, I think we'd sort of follow the invoice or follow the money, if you will, based on where our customers were already transacting overseas, and then see if it made sense for a product in that market. Totally. And moving over to the SPAC side of things, just what was your process like in terms of weighing your options moving forward in between an IPO, a SPAC, or just continued private rounds as you've done before? Yeah. No one would, would debate that it's a little bit of a volatile, rocky market, one, you know, one direction or the other. That said, I think for us, the SPAC, so a few comments. One, a lot of SPACs in their heyday recently, at least they were, I think, done with too much haste, right? No one got to know who they were, who they were partnering with for the long term. It was transactions were done in weeks, right, or, or or months. In our case, we've gotten to know our SPAC partner quite well over almost eighteen months. So we 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 started talking to them as far back as perhaps June of 2021. And then at that time, we looked at the options as well and said, you know what, we think still makes sense to remain private. We raised a small private round, just you know, not overcapitalizing the business, but sufficiently capitalizing it to get to sort of our next inflection point, continue growing, and then. Even, even as the macro market obviously continued to show more volatility into earlier this year, middle of this year, we still felt after having got to know this SPAC partner and their, their list of large holders of the money that they have in trust and their style of investing in terms of investing for the long run and had conversations even with several of them, it felt like it was the right partner. And we still feel that it could be a really good time for us to go public. And, and we believe that because of a few reasons. One, in our industry, financial services specifically, but our, our, our model specifically, where a lot of our growth comes from the ecosystem itself, because they're benefiting from our model, we actually believe that going public will continue being a big growth driver, not just sort of, you know, listing day where you have the fancy banners and stuff, which, you know, it can be a valuable marketing day. I'm talking actually intrinsically, a lot of our distribution today and acquisition comes from 
partners, banks, and other fintechs. And we believe that's going to accelerate once we sort of are public. Um, and the second trend or reason is we believe if, you know, if we price in a mature way and long-term markets will be efficient, I mean, short-term there's a lot of noise and it's worth it's worth probably ignoring, but long-term markets are efficient. And we do believe that if we continue to focus on our products and deliver you know good results, we then we do believe that this is actually a an efficient way to properly capitalize the company. You know, historically private rounds were probably a more efficient way to capitalize, you know, your comp one's company, but now capital has become a competitive advantage. A year ago it was not, and we could raise anything in the private markets. That's not true. So we actually think it's a way to sort of leapfrog some of the peers or competition or, or future competition um, from a capital advantage perspective. Well, and that leads right into what I wanted to get into next, which is just that we at Spec Insider, we track all this stuff. And we have seen that, you know, redemptions have been high in 2022, but I did see that Colonnade 2, your SPAC partner, announced last week it secured some additional capital for the deal. But just given that, you know, whatever the final proceeds are going to be is, is a bit of a moving number in, in some sense, how much do your business plans change based on what that's going to be? And, and how do you just look at that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think for us, we we went into the process pretty eyes wide open and said, okay, we want to plan for conservatism, um, which, you know, has sort of been our, our mantra for the last few years, even though we're growing 50, 60, 70% year over year, depending on the quarter. But we said, let's plan for conservatism because the market is leaning that way. Put it this way, the SPAC, I think, in trust is 330 million gross on a gross basis. We need a fraction of a fraction of that to successfully, you know, uh, scale and operate the business. And we feel that through a combination of some of the, the larger holders in the SPAC, as well as some other cash options and other facilities that you know we have lined up, we think we'll have you know plenty of sufficient capital in any scenario to sort of run our business. And you know, obviously, it just sort of dropped very recently. I'm not sure if you've had any conversations with any investors today, but I'm just interested in just sort of your reaction and and if it's something that's being talked about in those circles, just in terms of the the deal for your peer Coupa. I mean, that premium seems like an endorsement of the sector right now, even though it had been down a bit. But just sort of what what are you seeing in sort of those sorts yeah. of movements? Yeah, my reaction would probably be similar to a few months back for um, build, uh, the Build Trust acquisition, right? And I think I think it, both of those transactions, well, they're very different companies from each other and, and arguably different, although adjacent models to us, I'd say your comment was probably spot on and would align to sort of my sentiment, which is, I think it's showing that there is room in the public markets, which is no surprise, I think, for most people who look at where the markets are now, but everyone has a different opinion, which makes sense. Um, I think it shows there's a room, there, there's quite a bit of room in the public markets for, for growth multiples to be built in. And, and I think it gives us confidence that, again, we're not thinking about the stock day one, right? We Going public is not it, it, it's not a, a liquidity event, right? Everyone in the, in the other, you know, we're thinking it's a liquidity event. That is not the purpose of going public, at least in the short, medium term by any stretch, right? The, the purpose of going public is for the reasons I mentioned earlier in our case, right? Which is further distribution and growth and, and increasing our moat and properly capitalizing the company. And once you're public, you typically have access to, you know, debt markets in a, in a more liquid way than you would as a private company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, however, we do believe that it shows, okay, medium, long-term, there's a lot of room for growth here, especially specific to B2B from a secular perspective. And investors are, are going to, I think, um, start paying more attention to that. Right. And just going off of that, I'd love to hear uh, some of the other benefits that you're looking forward to leveraging from being publicly listed. Uh, sure. Um, yeah. I mean, listen, I think it creates a financial currency, perhaps like the theme I was alluding to a few minutes ago. 
And, you know, I think there's also something to be said for sort of the social currency and, and the double clicking on that, what I mean by that sort of the social currency is with respect to team and talent. I think as a founder and CEO, you're constantly evolving your own leadership skill set and playbook from series, you know, seed to A to late stage private to, you know, pre-public right now to, to, to then public and beyond. And I think why that why that's relevant is that within that playbook, you're constantly also seeking talent and new talent and additional talent that also likes to play at those different stages. Not everyone likes to play at all stages. Why is that relevant? I think there is a set of talent that um, is perhaps less accessible in you know being a mid late stage startup as a private company versus one that you know is public. And I think there's a benefit, especially in this market where talent, the employer, I'd argue has more leverage than you know the employee compared to say a year or two ago. Um, I think the, the combination of that plus having the stamp of rigor and approval of being a public company, even though we you know we'd be early as a public company in terms of you know our first year or two, I think that gives us access to an unfair talent advantage. And then what's the most exciting thing for you that's happening on the technology side? I mean, I think um, there's a lot that I probably could share and, and probably will share as we get closer and and certainly, after Republic. But I think for us, again, you heard me talk about sort of the, the recurring subscription transaction uh, revenue and our focus while it's while it's brand, brand new um, on that. And I, I mentioned that that would be, you know, one of the primary theses for SPAC proceeds is sort of expanding into that type of that type of margin profile and that type of revenue to complement our rapidly growing transaction revenue. And why is that relevant to your question on, well, why am I excited about technology? I'd say the vast majority of the potential and scale there is, is not just a go-to-market motion. It's really coming from our technology teams um, in terms of what types of integrations and features they're adding and building and how they're creating this experience for small and medium businesses to just frankly more easily manage and control what they do best, which is their business, so that we can kind of automate their payments and finances. And that, that starts with a technology and a data motion before a go-to-market motion. So I'm probably most excited by what the teams are working on with respect to sort of those features and those products today at Plastic. Great. Before I let you go, could you just give our listeners a, a quick update in terms of what you're looking at in terms of the timeline of the transaction and you know how, how close we are to that ringing of the bell, as you mentioned? Yeah, yeah lots of work left still to get there. Um, I think we are targeting sometime Q1, sorry, end in Q1.